it was a typical, beautiful, sunny afternoon on the island of Guam about nine years ago. I still remember that afternoon. It was a Saturday afternoon. My wife and children and I had just gotten back from church, and we'd had a wonderful lunch, kind of the highlight of the week as food goes. I got a phone call. It was uh, my neighbor and friend and colleague, Dr. Hugo Leon. And he was, he's one of these uh, physicians that's super high energy, always excited about life. Uh, he, uh, he's always seeking to help people in need. And he goes, Wes, says, uh, can, you, can you come to the hospital right now? And I go, uh, I guess I could come. What's up? And he says, I, I have my patient. His name's John. He almost died last night, and he really wants to talk to you. Hugo went on to explain to me that um, he'd been working with this 45-year-old firefighter who'd had diabetes for many years, but the night before, he had come in with acute kidney failure, and almost died. Family from all over the island had come to be with John the next day, uh, just shocked that they almost lost their son, their nephew, their father. And they were all eager that he would get better. And John now facing potential medical retirement, and almost having lost his life less than 24 hours before, is very eager because he heard something that Dr. Leon said that he'd never heard before. Dr. Leon had said, John, you could reverse this. This diabetes is out of control. Your blood pressure is out of control. Your cholesterol is out of control. Your health is out of control. You can reverse this if you really want to. He had never heard those words stated in that way before. You know, he was the typical person with chronic health complaints that really looked pretty fit other than the fact that his blood sugar was sky high, his blood pressure was sky high, and he was more and more developing other internal signs of disease. On the outside, he looked great, fit firefighter. On the inside, he was dying rapidly. And so uh, I, I drove to the hospital, and there was John. And, and interestingly enough, I see Dr. Farbach in the crowd. He's been to the hospital as a physician many times. Interestingly enough, there was nobody else in the entire hallway. There was no family. It was just John in his hospital gown and one nurse. She saw me, and, and uh, I talked with her, she, and she brought me his chart. And as I started flipping through the chart, I started seeing the reasons why he'd ended up in the hospital and almost died. You see, John, being a firefighter, is used to dealing with emergencies, but then 
in the amount of time between emergencies, what do all good firefighters do? Learn how to cook good meals. So there's this constant ebb and flow between downtime and then emergency, adrenaline rush. And yes, he was aware that he had diabetes, but he hadn't really taken it to heart. Because he he knew the statistics. He saw it all over the place. Uh, he, He knew that basically if... If you're over the age of 40 or between 40 and 59 years old, at least one out of two already have prediabetes. If you're between the ages of 60 and 74, at least two out of three already have at least prediabetes. And if you're over 74 years of age, at least three out of four already have prediabetes. And a full third at that age already have full-blown diabetes. So for John, it just seemed like it was just the normal process of aging. But John was only 45 years old. And as I looked at John's chart, let me just draw your attention to a few of the details that I was able to glean from going through John's chart you see, it, this had happened just after Christmas. And, and as, he, as he had come in for his first, his first visit or at the hospital, they ran the numbers, they ran the labs, his fasting blood sugar, 300. His random blood sugars, two hours after meals, 400 plus. Cholesterol, 300. The statistics show that if your cholesterol is around 300, you're 10 times more likely to die of a heart attack than if your cholesterol is right around 200 or less. But once again, a lot of these numbers only represent about 50% of somebody's risk of developing a serious complication. That's why we've been emphasizing in this series the importance of looking at advanced cardiovascular risk factors, looking at broader risk factors so that we can truly pinpoint what is it that is placing us at risk so we can do something about that now and not take the gamble that John took to potentially have passed away before his 46th birthday. His blood pressure was high with Two blood pressure medications, 150 over 100. His weight was 229, not not super heavy, but definitely overweight. His hemoglobin A1C, that sticky blood sugar test that looks at an average of your blood sugars over the last four months, that as your blood sugars rise immediately after meals, that Elevated sugar will start to stick to the cells all throughout your body and to the hemoglobin protein in your red blood cells. And that, that amount of stickiness should only be around 5%. And John had 16.6%. His blood was 
was crystallized almost with the amount of sugar that he was dealing with. So I walked into John's room, and as I looked into his face, I saw hope. I saw hope because his family physician, Dr. Leon, had instilled that within him just that morning. He said, John, you can do this. You don't have to go on through life being at risk of your body shutting down and dying. You have three children, John. See, other parts of this, though, showed that his creatinine level, that measure in the blood that represents how well your kidneys are filtering toxins, These are naturally occurring toxins, toxins that your body creates just because it's alive, just because it's digesting and processing protein. That creatinine level that's supposed to be less than 1.2 was 5.8, suggesting that if if the doctors hadn't intervened on him immediately, he wouldn't have had very many more hours to live. His microalbumin urine, the the small amounts of protein found in the urine, was 3,500. That test was taken two weeks after the initial visit. Who knows how high it was, how much protein he was spilling because the kidneys just were not working. They were not holding on to that critically important nutrient that critically important protein that the body had spent so much time and effort and energy in building from the building blocks. His, again, he had, he had diabetes for years, out of control, hypertension or high blood pressure, cholesterol dys, dys, dyslipidemia. His, his cholesterol was bad. His bad cholesterol was too high. His good cholesterol was too low. And he had periodontal disease. Now, we actually didn't didn't get into this for several months as he got involved in our program. You'll see that that John had a dramatic transformation in just one week. In the first 10 days of, of being on an intensive lifestyle medicine program, John reversed countless of these risk factors. But his cardiac CRP, that measure of systemic, whole body inflammation had remained high even throughout all those other amazing changes. So we started looking for what else is going on. And I went through my checklist. What could be possibly contributing to such elevated inflammation? A topic that has been central to our 12-week theme of optimizing health and healing. We have to figure out what's leading to inflammation if it's present. And what we discovered was is that he had this chronic, moderate-grade inflammation coming from his mouth. As I went through the checklist, is it chronic sinusitis? Is it a bacterial infection in the stomach? Is it a chronic fungal infection? What is it? And as I went through the checklist, I asked him to open his mouth. We had now 
now developed a great relationship. I'm no dentist or dental hygienist like my wife, but I knew that there was risk associated with gingivitis and periodontal disease. So I just asked him, open your mouth, John. And he did, and immediately I realized a big part of his problem. Untreated dental problems or gum inflammation can be a major source of stroke risk, heart attack risk, and toxicity to your entire body. You see, John, even though he had a fairly good salary, a very good salary as a seasoned firefighter, every time he went to the dentist, he got discouraged because he was told that it was going to cost him thousands of dollars. One, one dentist said, suggested that it would cost him at least $15,000 to fix what was going on in his mouth. And so I looked at John, and I said, I understand. I, I wouldn't want to have to spend $15,000 on any part of my body. But you almost died, John. You've got to fix the, the actual underlying causes of your risk. We know that, right? Inflammation drives the, it turns on the diabetes genes. Inflammation turns on and drives the cardiovascular disease genes, the cancer genes, but also can create havoc with the kidneys. And John had almost passed away because of that. So not only did he have inflammatory renal failure, he had chronic renal failure and acute renal failure all at the same time. Another complicating factor was that, that John was, had been found to have a very high potassium level in his blood. After all, his kidneys had essentially shut down, and they were no longer able at that point to remove excess potassium, and a high potassium level can lead to arrhythmias of the heart and fatal heart attack. So he was told by somebody that was looking at the, you know, the basic strategies to address this, is, is you need to completely stay away from potassium-rich foods. Well, that afternoon, um, as I talked to John, I started envisioning in my mind what it would take to help John get back control over his health. You see, because one of the challenges that people have who have real serious medical conditions, advanced problems with their kidneys in particular, is that to be healthy, you have to be on what we call a first-class diet, first-class foods, named for the idea that if you want first-class health, you got to eat first-class foods. So what does that involve? You need to really limit your second-class foods and try to stay away from the third-class foods. And we've covered that in previous sessions. But I wanted to emphasize a key point of what constitutes an optimal diet. One of the key strategies of a healthy diet involves green leafy vegetables. You got to have that in your diet. Those are the foods that are the most 
nutrient-dense. Those are the foods that have the greatest potential to literally soak up the environment around your genes and change the way your genes work for the better. That, that epigenetic transformation that can occur in those dysfunctional or harmful genes that we carry. You see, John had been told that he couldn't eat green leafy vegetables because they are rich in potassium. Other foods, the very key foods that can help control those soaring blood sugars. One of the, what I call the king of foods that can help improve lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, and optimize blood sugar, on and on and on, is the legumes, the beans, peas, and lentils. Again, super high in potassium. So it seemed like that John would be unable, medically unable, to tolerate the very food that would actually heal him. Or was there potentially another way? See, because as Seneca pointed out back around the year 2000, it's part of the cure to wish to be cured, or 2,000 years ago, rather. It's part of the cure to wish to be cured. You think that that goes without saying. But you know, there's a lot of people that really don't put the emotional effort in really wishing to be cured. That's the first step. And I could see it in John's eyes that he really wanted this. He had seen his life flash before his eyes. He had contemplated what his children would have said, would have done when they found out that he had died. I could see the emotion in John's eyes as he said, I want to deal with this now. I want to do whatever it takes. I want to do that. Well, um, John was beginning to understand as we talked that Saturday afternoon in the hospital with nobody else around us. We spent a couple hours just talking about how this could change. And he began to understand that the issue isn't what his blood sugar is, and what his cholesterol is. The issue is that whole underlying metabolic dysfunction. All those other factors that oftentimes are not paid attention to. Because, yeah, you, you, you could just give him more insulin to get his blood sugars better. He was already on 100 units of insulin. Just give him 150. His blood pressure was high on two medications for lowering blood pressure. He'd just take another one. Take a fourth medication. I'll get the blood pressure under control. But see, all those things are not addressing the actual cause of the problem. And John was beginning to understand that. All because his family physician, Dr. Hugo Leon, had been willing to share with him the potential that he had to change his health state to address the underlying cause of issues, and not just to focus on the superficial. 
So as you can see, John, being a firefighter, was not one to shrink away from a challenge. He was going to, he wasn't going to run away from that burning house. He was going to go deal with it and seek to protect his health and protect his family. Uh, we, we started our, our overall program and uh, did a baseline consult that, that next week, uh, right after he'd been released from the hospital. Again, Dr. Leon there the whole way. You're going to go do this lifestyle medicine program, right? Okay, you're going to go see Dr. Youngberg, right? And yes, yeah, he didn't have to be coaxed too much. So we did a, this baseline evaluation that you see, and then, and then about two weeks later, after a 10-day intensive lifestyle medicine program, we, we uh, did follow-up labs. Just two weeks later, because it was an intensive program. Normally, I would wait to do follow-up labs for about four weeks. But we were, we were exercising for an hour together in his group every day. We were checking blood sugars and blood pressures before and after exercise, before and after eating. We had John on a 100% plant-based diet. We had evaluated all of John's risk factors, and he was doing everything that was reasonable. First, second, and third line therapy. Everything that was reasonable to optimize his health. And today I want to focus on several of the tests that we did with John and how that relates to the bigger issue of kidney health. We're looking at the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate. How well does your kidney filter? The C-peptide test is a test we've talked about recently that looks at how well your pancreas is able to produce insulin on itself. And since John was already on over 100 units of insulin a day, we need to have a way to assess whether his pancreas was in failure or it was just that his diet and lifestyle was so out of control that his pancreas couldn't make all that excess insulin that was necessary to make up the difference. You know that in less than a week and a half of making changes, John was off over 100 units of insulin, completely off all of his insulin. No diabetes medication. Within two weeks, he was completely off all his blood pressure medicines. We're going to be looking at the blood urea nitrogen. This is, this is the, the toxic byproduct of protein metabolism in the body. The body converts it into urea. And it can be measured in the blood. And if it is elevated, we know that the kidneys are having a, a difficult time in processing and detoxifying and filtering out these naturally occurring toxins in the body. Creatinine is another uh, more sure way to evaluate how well the kidneys are filtering out these naturally occurring toxins of metabolism. And a final test is looking at the microalbumin urine. Micro just means small. Albumin is the most predominant protein in the blood. In fact, it's, it's the very protein that actually helps draw water out of the tissues into the blood. 
So when people have swelling in the tissues, one of the main reasons for that is because the, the, the albumin is leaking. You want to keep the albumin, the protein in the blood to draw the water into the blood or the, in the plasma. So how much of that, that protein, the albumin, is actually leaking or not being filtered properly and actually being dumped into the urine? That's a sign that the netting, the filtration process is damaged and it's not able to hold on to that gold mine, that precious protein that the body, again, has spent so much time and effort to build. So the microalbumin level, we want that to be between 0 and 17. And if you're looking at the microalbumin-creatinine ratio, that should be under 30. This is going to be important as you look at John's actual numbers before and, and two weeks into the program. And then again, three months later. The creatinine level uh, should be between 0.7 and 1.2. Seen many people within just two weeks go from a creatinine level of 3-400 all the way back to normal. Just by aggressively, excuse me, uh, um, that would be a microalbumin level of 300. Uh, a creatinine levels of 1.5, 1.8, coming right back down. A blood urea nitrogen level should be between 7 and 25. And then the filtration rate, the little filters in the kidneys. They, that filtration rate should be ideally well over 90 but there are now five stages recognized of chronic kidney disease. And frequently, I will see individuals, and I look at their filtration rate in their kidneys, and it's less than 60. They're already at stage 3A, somewhere between 45 and 59. And I, since, since my work is involved in helping individuals understand their risk, where they're at right now, I bring this up. And they go like, what? Stage 3 chronic kidney uh, disease? What happened to stages 1 and 2? But see, this is such a common problem in our society today that many times doctors, because they're busy and they're focusing on the main reason for the visit, don't even bring it up. It's so common. But then as that chronic kidney disease begins to progress into stage 3B with, with a, the filtration rate dropping below 45, somewhere between 30 and 45. That's becoming more and more risky. You know what the good news is that this stage is completely reversible. And there's no reason why somebody who's paying even the smallest amount of attention to their health shouldn't know that in time to reverse it. We know that having an elevated protein in the urine, even mildly elevated, directly increases the risk for heart attack and stroke and premature death. In fact, every increase in kidney dysfunction directly relates to increased 
sickness, increased risk of death, and from all causes as well. Once again, the good news is that this is reversible. So as as we're dealing with the primary causes, the primary reasons why so many of us have issues with our kidneys, most people aren't aware of it, but it's there. In fact, many people, many people have a, a third of their kidney not working or a half of their kidneys not working, and they have no idea because there's no obvious signs. You know, you can live, you can survive pretty well with one kidney. But not if, not if as we age, that one kidney is only working 50%. So one of the critical challenges regarding our health is that, as you take a look at this slide, the, the average diet only consists of 7% of whole unprocessed foods. It's amazing to me that our population is as healthy as it is because we're getting very little exposure on average to the foods that were designed to heal the body and restore us back to health every day, multiple times a day. So so 7% of our diet as Americans comes from whole fruits and vegetables and unprocessed foods. That's got to change. That's got to change. And and that's the reason why so many of us are developing problems with diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, autoimmune disease, and so forth. 42% of the diet comes primarily from dairy and animal foods. And 51% of our diet comes from refined and processed foods. So what we want to do is we look at the next slide. We want to transform that. So instead of only 7% of our calories coming from fruits, vegetables, beans, whole grains, etc., that we're getting over 80% of our diet coming from that. And that we're limiting animal foods as much as possible. In fact, there's, there's actually no reason to use animal foods if we're focusing on an optimal diet. But at minimum, that should be limited greatly. It's the societies around the world, non-vegetarian societies, that consume the least amount of animal protein. They're getting 5-7% of their calories coming from animal foods. They're the ones that are very healthy. We need to at least take it that far. And and then refined starches should be limited. uh, Instead of being the 42%, they should be limited to well under 10%. So those are the goals that we're shooting for. We want to try to get more of these foods, these very foods that John was told he couldn't eat because his potassium level is high, his kidneys are shut down. He couldn't get rid of that potassium that was so rich in the very foods that he needed to eat to heal his body. So what do we do? Would would you recommend that he eat green leafy vegetables? Well, we need to pay attention 
to science. We need to pay attention to the risk. Clearly, we don't want his potassium level to go high, but there's always a way. If we're willing to do what's best, there is almost always a way to circumvent the initial problem by understanding the big picture. And so the, the issue was he needs that food to get healthy. It is those foods that heal the body. So his kidneys are never going to get better or optimally healthy unless they're exposed to the nutrients that come from foods that also have this potassium in it. So as I talked with, with his internist, we came up with a plan. You see, where there's a will, there's a way. And as you see here on this slide uh, towards the right, in April, three months later, we did lab work on John, and his creatinine had come down from a death-defined 5.8 to a 1.3. Just a little bit. In fact, back then, that was within the normal range. Just a little bit outside of the range we like to see today of 1.2 down to uh, 0.7. His... Small amount of protein in his urine had decreased from 3,500 to 400 during those three months. Yeah, his kidneys were still a little bit damaged, but nowhere near the damage that he'd had even in the weeks and during the first month after his near-death experience. He was now off all his medications, all his medications except for a half dose of a cholesterol medication. That was just given to him because they just thought, well, it'd probably be good for you, even though, you know, everything looks good. We're just concerned. He had so much inflammation. And what we did for his potassium is simply give him a syrup called Kayexalate, which he took every day. And this syrup binds potassium so that while he was eating all these healthy, high-potassium foods, this kyxalate syrup was able to bind potassium so that his blood potassium levels would not go high and create heart risk. But you know what? After eating a high-potassium diet for one week, week and a half, he no longer needed the kyxalate because his kidneys had now healed enough because of all the things that we had done, all the things that we're going to be talking about today in helping reverse that acute and now chronic kidney disease. And now his blood sugars are all under 110 fasting, uh, under 132 hours after meal. John was excited. He said, but these changes didn't all take three months. In fact, as we look at the next slide, we see that by February 10, basically about a month after he'd initiated this program, his blood sugars were already in control. His cholesterol had dropped to 175. Now, that was including medication, but he was able to stop his medication at that, or, or cut it in half at that point. His, his blood pressure was now down to 175 with his meds, and of course, very quickly, his internist explained to John, says, once your blood pressure starts getting to like 100 or top number, uh, uh, 70, 75, bottom number, we're going to just start cutting your medication. Why? Because the risk of being over-medicated can become the greater risk 
when somebody is on an aggressive path to deal with the actual cause of the problem. See, if, if we've actually dealt with the causes of his high blood pressure, we're actually risking causing more damage by maintaining the medication. So that's why monitoring by his physician was so critical, and within such a short time, he had been able to discontinue that. In just one month, his hemoglobin A1C dropped from 16.6, which is by any standard out of control diabetes. Remember, every point above five, every single point above five represents a 35% increased risk of kidney failure, of blindness, and other complications. So he had some serious risk, but it already dropped to 12.2 in just one month, and it just kept dropping every week. It kept dropping. The, the blood sugar sticky problems in our body reverse very quickly if we're doing the right things. Ah, both his blood pressure meds and his insulin. So that, that introduces very broadly this theme this theme of preventing and reversing chronic kidney disease, which is a hidden epidemic. Now, you might be thinking, as I used to, kidney disease, man, I don't have a problem with that. The, the reality, though, the reality is that 59% of Americans will suffer from kidney disease in their lifetime. Now, that's assuming that nothing changes. This is just published in, in May of 2014. This is a critical, critical uh, challenge. It, uh, uh, researchers at Johns Hopkins University looked at, looked at many individuals and discovered that this is a huge problem. We're, all he we're heading towards chronic kidney disease unless we do specific things to reverse and halt that process. Now, what do we do about this? There was a, there was a, a study that was um, just concluded or just published uh, in 2014 in the Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology. Nephrology is a study of, of optimizing kidney function and treating people with kidney disease. And essentially, this study looked at over 6,000 patients who had chronic kidney disease already into stages 3 to 5, so final stages of chronic kidney disease, and they found that walking dramatically lowered the risk of dying or requiring dialysis. And this is what I want you to be aware of. Every incremental increase in walking during a given week dramatically increased the chances of doing well and being healthy dramatically decreased the risk of dying during that year alone and dramatically decreased the risk of having to go on dialysis. Walking one to two days per week lowered the risk of death during that year for those individuals by 17%. Well, that's good. Walking three to four times a week lowered the risk by 28%, and walking five to six times a week decreased the risk of premature death by 58%. Now, 
You see how this increases fairly dramatic every time? It's not just additive. This is critical that we take advantage of daily exercise programs. I know that we're so busy. We've got so much going on in our lives. But exercising, walking, bicycling, some type of exercise, especially moderate exercise, is being underutilized by well over 80% of American population. Such an easy thing to do. And I strongly encourage you. I got to keep encouraging myself. It's an easy thing to go many days without any real significant exercise. I was working with an individual just this afternoon who drives over an hour, he and his wife, to see me. His plaque test, that measure of, of, the, of how the cells in the artery wall are leaking enzymes, directly related to the fact that there's these foam cells, this plaque accumulation in the artery wall. His plaque test was running 233. A significant risk of a heart attack or stroke. This plaque test directly represents risk for not just a heart attack, but stroke as well, unlike cholesterol. And as I talked to him, I realized that I asked him how much exercise he was doing. And he says, well, you know, I, I mow the lawn. You know, he's retired. You know, he, he stays active. And I, and, I, and I commended him for that. Staying active is critical. Why? Because being up on our feet at least once during the, every hour dramatically lowers inflammation. But in of it its, itself is not enough. It's not sufficient. We need to have a planned exercise program. We must supplement exercise. It's not natural. <laughs> not natural. We have to add it to our program. We must plan it in because without that, our body suffers. We can't just be active during the day, as important as that is. You have to plan it. And I commend those of you who, who regularly have exercise where you're doing at least 30 minutes every day. And I know some of you that I work with are, are doing about an hour and a half of exercise different times during the day because you know that that's what you need to optimize your health. The studies show that that's also critical for the kidneys. Another factor that is, is so critical for the kidneys that there was even a, a medical continuing education course developed around this miracle drug. It was published in Medscape. That, and they, they showed that that chronic kidney disease starts to advance above stage three into stage four when this miracle drug, this miracle nutrient starts to drop. We've, we've talked about this before. This miracle drug kills bacteria, protects against pneumonia better than anything. It fights tuberculosis. In fact, it's been shown to cure tuberculosis when added 
to the normal tuberculosis medication. Uh, it, it adds years to our life. It synchronizes hormones. It beautifies our skin. It prevents certain cancers and multiple sclerosis. It fights binge eating, drives away depression, prevents falls in the elderly. It protects our bones, and we'll get to that in a second. It lowers the risk of hip fractures by 50%, increases agility, makes the muscles stronger, builds the immune system, and prevents and helps reverse chronic kidney disease. Do you know what that miracle drug is? That miracle nutrient? Vitamin D. Vitamin D. A, a, a critical nutrient that's been getting bad press recently. Causing all kinds of confusion. That's why we need to have faith. You know what my favorite definition of faith is? Faith is the art of holding on to something that you once knew to be true in spite of changing circumstances and moods. See, the winds of change are always around us. There's political uh, efforts at times to change the opinions, but we have to be grounded in what we believe. We have to be grounded in what we know to be true, and this is one example. Now, one of the reasons that vitamin D is so critical is because of this calcium calcification paradox. Essentially, that we have a, a very strange scenario going on as we age that, that we have osteoporosis developing at the very time that calcium is hardening in our arteries. Wait a minute, how can that be? I remember as a student at Loma Linda University, as I was... Uh, as I was in gross anatomy class, we all were assigned to a cadaver, and, um, and we have to know everything inside and out of, on all the cadavers, because on test day, there's going to be a string attached to one something in that body, and you got to know what it is. You just got to know it cold. You can't be guessing. And, uh, and so my job one day was to dissect the heart to open it up and to clear out, look at the coronary arteries. And this was, a, this was a 45-year-old lady who had died of heart disease. At that time, I thought that was pretty old. <laughs> that, that, that age has gone uh, a long time ago for me. And I was thinking about that 10 years ago when I saw John's chart and realized he was my age. We were both 45 at that time. He almost died. I was thinking about doing that, uh, working on that cadaver and, and opening up that coronary artery, slicing, and then I looked, and it was very hard. And I, I you know, not knowing and not having much experience uh, uh, cutting up cadavers, I just thought it was because it was a cadaver that it was so hard. Dr. Roberts uh, and one of the other professors came up to me and said, you know what that is, Youngberg? I go, well, 
says, that's hardening of the artery. As I, as I cut the artery long ways and opened it up, there was a tube, a thick straw in it, which was all calcium, about a millimeter and a half thick. I, I was able to break that right out, see this tube, the straw. And I began thinking to myself, and I said, if only this person had had access to information on reversing atherosclerosis. And I remember that one of the professors says, oh, you can't reverse atherosclerosis. You can't reverse hardening up. This was a long time ago. This is back in the mid-80s. And I remember thinking, I said, wait a minute, we just had a lecture on how bones, these huge calcium deposits in our body can disintegrate. Why can't we get rid of a millimeter of calcium in an artery? That didn't make any sense to me. But I was a student, so I can't make too much of a fuss. But now we understand that there's this calcification paradox that, that when the vitamin D in the blood gets low, that means that we're not able to, to bring in the calcium that's in the food that we're eating. The ability to draw calcium from the food into the bloodstream is diminished by half. And as the blood calcium starts to suffer a little bit, the body instantly says, hey, we cannot afford to have a low blood calcium level. And so immediately, the parathyroid hormone releases, or the parathyroid gland releases its hormone. And that hormone goes to the bone and stimulates the osteoclasts, which are these little cells that chew up bone and spit it out into the blood. Why? that raises the calcium level. So now the calcium levels are up. The body's now able to do what it needs to do with calcium, but that extra calcium that's floating around does what? It starts to harden the arteries and the carotids and the coronaries, and it also hardens the kidneys. It damages the kidneys. And so the studies, as I took this continuing education course, it showed that when vitamin D levels are low and we have stage 2, stage 3 chronic kidney disease, if that vitamin D remains low, what happens is that that parathyroid hormone is produced at a higher level. It draws calcium out of the bones, causing osteopenia, osteoporosis, and that excess calcium ends up in your artery walls and in your kidneys. By optimizing vitamin D, you reverse that whole process. And then by optimizing the consumption of green leafy vegetables, where now you're getting abundant vitamin K, vitamin K is actually the rate-limiting vitamin that actually helps the tissues in the arteries throw away calcium, where it's not, get rid of the calcium where it's not supposed to be. There's this GLA protein matrix in the tissues of the arteries that is able, if, if vitamin K is present, it's able to get rid of calcium and start changing that hard artery into a flexible, healthy, younger, biologically younger artery. So we've got to pay attention to the calcium calcification paradox. 
There's another powerful natural strategy available that I can't help but mention because it relates to charcoal. Those, there's, we've talked about detoxification and the power of charcoal and helping detoxify the body. Well, just a few years ago, not more than, than an hour from where we're tonight in San Diego, the American Society of Nephrology held its annual meetings. And at that meeting, Dr. Valentina Khan, she was a professor from Vanderbilt University. She presented a study that she had done with her colleagues at Vanderbilt showing that mice who had had a part of their kidneys damaged, who now were not able to fully detoxify the blood, were not able to do their job, quickly developed atherosclerosis and serious heart disease. Very quickly. They found that when they added activated powdered charcoal to the diets of these mice, they didn't develop heart disease, even though they had compromised kidneys. It was such an interesting finding that they they had talked about the fact that chronic kidney disease, after a certain stage, there's very little currently available in conventional medical practice to treat that effectively and prevent the heart disease that it causes. But what they found with this mice study is that even after delaying treatment to these mice who are developing problems by adding the charcoal to their diet, their heart disease resolved. So what's going on here? We've, we've been talking throughout this entire series about inflammation. The researchers found that, that the cholesterol was still the same, the blood pressure was still the same, but what changed dramatically was inflammation. Why? Because it's toxins in the blood that create inflammation for the most part. The the, the top lipidologists, cardiologists understand that you have to have a toxin in the artery wall for plaque to begin because that plaque is an attempt of the white blood cells to scavenge out those toxins out of the artery wall. And as those white blood cells fill up with that toxic cholesterol, they form into foam cells like styrofoam, plaque. And so so we have a potential treatment that people can use. We need to address what is causing the toxicity. But when somebody has an, an acute infection, as John did on his foot, If he had put a charcoal poultice on that immediately and gotten medical treatment, he would have never developed acute renal failure. So that's that's something to to think about. I was asked this question once at at a small medical conference that our medical group put together. 
And it was, a, it was a visiting nephrologist who was giving a talk to the group promoting a, a new blood pressure medication. He said, what is the average number of blood pressure medications needed to properly treat hypertension? He said, he was looking at all of us in, in, around that boardroom table, and he says, each of us, we all need to stop telling our patients that they can resolve their blood pressure problem with one medication. It's just because it rarely happens. We need to stop telling our patients that they can, they can control their blood pressure problems with two medications. I'm not talking about taking the same medication twice <laughs> during the day. I'm talking about taking two different types of medications once or twice. And he went on to say that in nephrology and in the treatment of hypertension, it oftentimes will take three to four different type of blood pressure medications alone to control blood pressure. Unless, he went on to say, they get religion in the sense of lifestyle medicine. I was initially shocked that he said that. He got a chuckle out of the crowd. But without realizing it, he had actually established what was most important in treating hypertension, one of the main causes of heart disease, strokes, and kidney failure, is that we need to start taking lifestyle medicine seriously because that's the only way to address the cause of the problem. So when, we, when it comes to blood pressure issues, it's important that we take the time to assess the risk of over-medication. There's all kinds of, of, of case studies and studies that we could cite on this, but the bottom line is this. As I've worked with, with many, many patients over the last 25 years who've gone through intensive lifestyle medicine programs, I've noticed something that Initially, many patients who are on blood pressure medications are doing very well, feeling great. And then after about six weeks on a comprehensive program, many times they'll come in and say, you know, I, I just don't feel good anymore. Something's wrong. So we take a look at the objective information, and we start seeing that trend in blood pressure. And I would encourage them to work more closely with their primary care physician to address their blood pressure because they're getting to, they're already past the point where the medications are actually benefiting them and now they're actually placing them at risk. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that patients should never be on blood pressure medication. I'm saying that once you actually have addressed the cause of the problem, we have to adjust, work with the doctor to adjust the medication or else there's going to be an over-medication problem that will, at minimum, make them feel so bad they don't want to follow the program anymore and they'll go right back to where they were before needing that medication. <laughs> or they could end up in an emergency room because of significantly low blood pressure. Pay attention to that. So we, uh, we know from Proverbs that plans fail for the lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Many advisors, that's where I look at all these blood tests that we've been talking about. Testing broadly. I see them as one of our 
one of our many advisors that are available to us to guide us in the decisions that we make. There was a, an interesting study done by Dr. Neil Bernard at Georgetown University. Let me just take you to this study. He, uh, he essentially the director of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and he received a grant to work with a group of diabetics to see what the best diet was to reverse diabetes or to help optimize blood sugars. So he did a three-month controlled intervention trial at Georgetown University, and he essentially uh, he was comparing the American Diabetes Association diet with the best diet, as he referred to it. The, the, you see, these diabetic patients with their spouse were randomly assigned and met two evenings every week for three months, and their meals were catered. They were given nutritional information, uh, group support, taught how to cook, but all their meals were catered. As you can see, um, the last line on each of these diets showed that adherence to the diet was great. Everybody loved what they were eating, regardless of which group they were in. The main difference between the two groups was that the, the ADA diet had about 200 milligrams of cholesterol, and they, they had chicken, fish, uh, similar to American Heart Association Step 1 diet. But, but Dr. Bernard's best diet, as he referred to it, had zero cholesterol, 60 to 70 grams of fiber. That's a lot of fiber, but they all did very well with it. No refined foods, oil, white flour, no white rice, no white pasta. Now, the group on the American Dietetic Association diet did very well. Blood sugars got better. Um, no change in medications, but they lost eight and a half pounds. Uh, problem was is that their kidney function, the amount of protein that was lost in their kidneys got worse. Huh. And that's after better blood sugar control and eight and a half pounds of weight loss. But they found that the group that was on the 100% plant-based diet had a 59% greater improvement in their blood sugars than the other group did, and they had a drop in their medications at the same time. So anytime you decrease a blood pressure medication, you expect the blood sugar to go higher, not lower. And so that showed that there was a profound improvement in that diet compared to the ADA diet. Um, 16 pounds of weight loss, almost double the amount of weight loss during that three months. But the patients who had had proteinuria, who had had that loss of protein in their urine, got better. They had less protein in their urine. So the diet that we consume has a very quickly a very powerful influence on kidney function. And let me again suggest to you why, and tell you why I thought it was so critical that we address this topic as part of the 12-week series. You see, because we cannot have good health unless we have healthy kidneys. Unless we have healthy kidneys, we cannot remove the toxins that are ever developing inside our body. We have to have healthy kidneys. But to have healthy kidneys, we have to have healthy circulation. 
We cannot have good health without good circulation. So that's the key theme. And we cannot have good circulation with inflammation and toxins causing damage to our system. So let me suggest to you that it's actually fairly easy to get 40, 50 plus grams of fiber a day. And here's, here's what I call my fiber cliff notes. Okay? So if you, if you regularly use legumes, beans, peas, lentils in your diet, you're going to be getting... Eight grams of, uh, of fiber for every half cup serving. Now, if you don't use beans in your diet very often, you're not going to get a lot of fiber, right? You're just not going to get a lot of fiber. So find a way to make that happen for you. Vegetables. One cup, one cup of vegetables, about two grams of fiber. Grains. Half a cup of grains, three grams of fiber. And half a, uh, a cup of fruit or a a medium apple, three grams of fiber. That's, those are general guidelines. And so, so when you eat a meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, ask, do the math. He says, where, am I getting at least 10 grams of fiber for breakfast? Am I getting at least 15 grams of fiber for lunch and dinner? At least. That fiber is what helps clean your system out. It helps protect your kidneys further. It helps improve your circulation. It helps uh, lower the risk for all disease. Take advantage of the fiber. So it was Hippocrates that said, let foods be your medicine and medicine be your foods. Now, as we're wrapping up this session today, I remember about almost 10 years ago, I'd been asked by the president of a large regional medical society. He called me up one afternoon and said, hey, Wes, I'd love for you to speak at our upcoming conference in October. I said, I'd, I'd love to. So what, what would you like me to speak on? He said, I would like you to speak on reversing diabetes with nutrition. <laughs> And uh, being familiar with the controversies and the consequences of talking about things like this at least 10 years ago, I, I sought to clarify and I said, now, Doc, uh, you sure that you and me talk at this huge conference? They were inviting 500 physicians and health professionals all over the Pacific Rim to attend. And... Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, they'll love it. I go, all right. <laughs> all right. So, so the, the, the Sunday came that I was asked to speak, and I walk into a double ballroom, four or 500 people in attendance. A geneticist, uh, an internationally known geneticist researcher had just finished speaking. And, and I was now introducing this topic. And so I thought, you know, I better, I better kind of clarify this at the beginning, you know, just to get myself out of trouble. So by the way, I just want to go on record that it was, it was uh, Dr. Titano, the, the president of, of this medical society that organized this conference. He was the one that picked the title for my talk today. You know, I just kind of smiled and thought I was covered. Well, I went on to present what, what I thought was a, a good 90-minute overview of how diabetes could be reversed. 
During that presentation, I showed a minute and a half clip from this documentary, Super Size Me. If you haven't seen this, you got to see it. Uh, where M- Morgan Spurlock, the, the producer, decided that he was going to eat nothing but McDonald's for 30 days. It literally almost killed him. He gained 29 pounds <laughs> in 30 days. He, his, his, his liver enzymes went through the roof. His do- he had three doctors checking up on him uh, separately, not knowing about each other. And each of the doctors says, you're crazy. You're just pickling your liver. Whatever you're doing, stop doing it. You know, they're asking us, are you just like drinking vodka all night long? No, I'm just eating McDonald's. <laughs> and, and he says, well, just stop doing it because you're killing yourself. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting documentary. But in that documentary, he interviewed two bariatric surgeons who stated that the only known procedure in medicine that can cure diabetes was gastric bypass surgery. And they went on to explain from various studies why they believe that. So I thought it would be good, you know, for evidence-based presentation to talk about what was being discussed in the medical community about curing diabetes. Well, at the end of the presentation is uh, is, uh, the chairman of the scientific panel had come up to presumably take questions for me. Instead of taking questions, he says, before I take questions, I want to I clarify something. He says, I completely disagree with Dr. Youngberg's presentation this afternoon. You could have heard a pin drop. 500 people in the audience. They're looking at me, looking at him. I'm looking at him and looking at them. And they're trying to say, what's going to happen next, right? And Fortunately, he went on to elaborate. He went on to explain himself. Clearly, he wasn't wasn't upset at me. He wasn't trying to make me look bad. He He just was establishing what he believed, which, of course, is what conferences are all about, right? You got to be able to say what you believe, what you think is accurate. And as he was elaborating, I'm praying to myself, the Lord help me to know what to say, how to address this this obvious challenge, and not to take it personally. And, and, and so he, he went on to explain that, says, because the previous speaker had been an a internationally recognized geneticist who had actually stated that he believed that in the future they would be able to reverse diabetes through genetic engineering. And as soon as he said that, I knew exactly what I needed to say. So I patiently waited him for, waiting for him to finish and and as he finished, I said, well, th- doctor, I appreciate your perspective. He actually was a nephrologist, a kidney specialist, who had a renal dialysis unit right across the hall from our lifestyle medicine clinic. I saw him all the time. Uh, why would a nephrologist, a kidney specialist, say what he did? Why would he say he didn't believe that diabetes was reversible? Because, see, he is working with a group of patients at the end of their experience with diabetes or hypertension. He'd never seen it reversed. I, on the other hand, had worked with many patients with diabetes and seen it reversed because my goal was to actually help reverse it as opposed to just manage the symptoms. 
So we were working on, we were like uh, two blind men and a, in the room with the elephant. We had different experiences with that elephant. So I realized that his experience was valid working with his group, his population. Uh, but, but I said to him, said, doctor, it's, it's critical that we do not destroy hope in our patients. If we tell our patient, like John, if, we t- if, I, if, if Dr. Leon had told John, says, well, you know, you almost died last night. says, I don't, you know, you, you're probably not going to make it. You know, this, this could happen again next week. And, you know, we'll, we'll rush you to the hospital and we'll, we'll do everything we can, John. Uh, but, you know, all we got here is more insulin, more blood pressure meds, more cholesterol meds. What would have John done? He would have gone home depressed. He would have probably retired from, the, from the, uh, uh, being a firefighter, and he would have probably continued to eat and not exercise and not do all the things he needed to do to get healthy again because he didn't have hope. So we can't destroy hope in our patients. Says, and, not, and, and secondly, I'm glad that we've had an internationally recognized geneticist talk about the potential for genetic engineering and reversing diabetes because that is exactly how nutritional and lifestyle medicine works. It re-engineers genetic risk by changing the way the genes work. And that was fortunately the final word. We went on to take questions. Two days after this conference, Tuesday morning, I'm driving to work. I'm listening to the morning news, and I, to, to my utter amazement, I hear a report that the Journal of the American Medical Association had just published a major report that showed that diabetics who had undergone gastric bypass surgery, thousands and thousands of them, had completely resolved diabetes 77% of the time. And that those with high blood pressure uh, uh, or blood, hypertension was resolved in 62% of them. High cholesterol was improved in 70%. Sleep apnea was resolved in 86%. So I, I started formulating a plan on how I was going to get this information to the nephrologist that work next door. I get on the elevator from the car park and guess who the only other person was in the elevator with me? My initial impulse was to kind of rub it in. Hey, uh, see that new Ajama article that just came out? I, I, I thought better of it. I knew that he would, you know, he was a researcher. I knew that he would find out soon enough. And you know, uh, within a month's time, we, co- we were collaborating on diabetes research throughout the Pacific. And so it's exciting to me that over the last 10 years, we have learned so much more. We have learned that our potential to reverse disease is great. Our potential to prevent problems is even greater. If we have a willingness to pay attention, we can do amazing things with our health. Remember that we need to, as we work on setting limits in our lives, we need to do it with joy. 
We need to enjoy each day in a way that gives us even more joy tomorrow. See, that's, that's what health and wellness is all about. It's not about, well, I can't do that. Oh, can't eat that. Oh, I got to go exercise again. And then tomorrow it starts all over again. Oh, I got to go exercise again. It's, it's not about the things we can't do and the things that we have to do. It's about how we can experience optimal joy. See, we can't experience optimal joy unless we have optimal health. So it's learning how to make choices in a way that brings us that lasting happiness and joy. So ultimately, I want to challenge us to remember something that we've been talking about for 12 weeks now. Remember that only you, you pay attention to the slide here, only you can be an effective chairman or chairwoman of the board for your own health. See, we can choose a new direction. Only us can do that. Nobody can tell us to do it. But as we become aware of what's available to us, as we become aware of the many advisors available to us, all those tests available to us, I hope that each of you make that decision to take that, that road less traveled because that will make all the difference. Thank you very much. I want to take some questions at this moment and invite those in the audience who would like to come and ask a question to come up to the mic. Um, but I would like to begin with this question, kidney stones. Um, is there a way of taking care of kidney stones in a natural way? Well, the key about any type of stones is to have it analyzed. If, if you have access to one of the stones that has passed, have it analyzed and find out what, what is it made up of. What's contributing to it? One of, the, um, one of the interesting things to pay attention to is that there's been conflicting evidence as to how calcium relates to stone formation. And what's interesting is that when calcium is taken with a meal, it actually binds oxalates, which are, can be one of the key components of a stone, therefore reducing the, the growth or the development of a stone. But when calcium is taken in between meals, it can actually increase the risk of stone formation. So that's, that's one of, of many tips. I would say that the, the main goal is to step back and to look at all the strategies that we've been outlining with regards to health and to focus on the obvious things first. Some, we, we oftentimes like a, a quick and simple solution, uh, and then we go back to the same old lifestyle. So what we need to ask is, what are the causes of these problems? And, and start addressing the obvious things. In other words, am I, am I eating a healthy diet? Am I getting plenty of fiber in my diet? These are simple things, but they take effort and consistency on our part. Uh, am I drinking plenty of water? Am I, am I waking up to, to that, that warm mug of water every morning to rehydrate the system? If we're not doing that, that's one of the first things we should be addressing. Am I getting, am I getting exercise in the open air and sunlight every day? 
those influence so many hormones and so many processes in the body, okay? Am I taking advantage of these things that, I've rec- that we've been discussing over the last 12 weeks? Okay, thank you very much. Um, we have, I guess, a question from our audience here. Hello, doctor. Hey. Uh, a couple of quick questions. Uh, first of all, what are some of the outward symptoms of you know, kidney failure or, or kidney disease? Well, first of all, it's, it's actually referred to silent killer. You know, there, there's a lot of silent killers uh, around, unfortunately. Diabetes is referred to as a silent killer. Hypertension is a silent killer. Um, and, and chronic kidney disease is actually a silent killer for the most part as well. And that's why we call it the hidden epidemic. It's just people are not aware of it. So unless we do those tests, we don't catch it early enough. But in later stages, there are many potential sim- symptoms associated with that. As people do go into stage four or stage five chronic kidney disease, then it's very obvious that they're, they're toxic. You know, they don't, they, 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 the skin changes color, the urine can get foamy because of protein in the urine. It's just it's very obvious something's wrong here. And so, uh, my, my hope is that nobody would wait until they develop symptoms to go get checked out. That's probably the overriding theme of this entire series is don't wait until you feel like something's wrong to get checked out. Because much of the time, in fact, I, would be, I dare say most of the time, the things that really get us are the things that we never feel. Right. A third of all sudden death heart attacks occur in people who have no idea they have any risk at all for heart disease. Sudden death means they're dead within 24 hours. Okay? So, so, so yes, there's, there, there are symptoms, but usually they're not felt until the very end stages. Thank you. The other question was regarding the use of activated charcoal uh, and on a daily basis. Do you have any guidelines for that? Okay. Uh, g- great question. Very practical question. And, um, the, you know, I always feel a little uncomfortable when I'm talking <laughs> about activated charcoal because it's just like, uh, it reminds me of, um, of a, a, one of the health workers in the islands um, in, in um, Chuuk. He, uh, he, he would go visit people all over the place. The only thing he had with him, they, they had no budget for medicines. The only thing he had with him was charcoal. And he picked up that idea from a conference that I had spoken at. And, and so he was, he was like considered to be like the best witch doctor in the whole area because he had charcoal, which, you know, can, you know, do so many things. So I would say this, if, if I had, if I could only choose one remedial agency to have with me during a major crisis, whether here or in some third world country, it would be charcoal. I've often thought, what would happen if this uh, Interstate 15 corridor between, between Riverside and, and San Diego, if the power went out, this entire corridor would just shut down, right? Uh, water would, uh, we'd lose water, we'd lose electricity. What would happen to disease? It would spread like wildfire. Oh, we'd go to the hospital, right? Forget about it. Hospitals would be packed already. We're all on our own. 
So that's why one reason I have this huge, huge bag of charcoal in my garage, because I will be the one in my neighborhood to make sure that, that uh, diarrheal diseases, cholera, et cetera, are not spread like wildfire, because it's so simple to treat and cure just with charcoal. So, but to, to, to go beyond that, okay, is um, the, the guidelines for charcoal use involve, you can use them externally as a poultice, or you can use them internally. And, you know, we could spend hours talking about case studies on this, but essentially, uh, mixed up with a little bit of extra virgin olive oil into a thick paste, uh, put into a paper towel and, a, and applied to to a boil or to an infection of any kind, it will literally draw out the toxins and the infection, the, the inflammation. It will draw out the very inflammatory molecules that are in the body. It can actually, it can actually draw toxins right from the liver if necessary. Uh, but taken internally, as the Vanderbilt University study showed, it can mop up the toxins and therefore mop up the inflammation that would otherwise be chronic in somebody who has impaired kidney function or just has excess toxins in their system for some reason. So, so uh, I think it's prudent for the average person to consider using a heaping teaspoon of activated charcoal and a, four or five ounces of ice cold water and, and do that periodically just as like a, a way to cleanse the system. Okay, and uh, that clearly helps detoxify, especially nowadays since we are exposed to so many toxins un unawares. We are literally being bombarded with toxins unawares, and, and I think it's just prudent for us to maybe once a week, maybe every two weeks to, to, to do this, you know, what I call the black shake. <laughs> just mix up the black shake and, and drink that. And the, the one caveat, is that it must be taken away from medication because it will bind that medication. So at least, at least uh, uh, taking two hours or three hours away from medication would be the goal. And, uh, and so it, it can be used. And it, doesn't bind, it only binds toxins. It doesn't, it doesn't have a great affinity for nutrients. That's why you can't use it if somebody's taking too much iron. It's not, it's, it is the universal antidote to toxins but not to iron overload or iron toxicity because iron's a nutrient and, and you, you have to use something else to deal with the iron. Thank you. You're welcome. Another question is, um, we heard tonight that water is very good for your kidneys. Um, what about cranberry juice or other natural juices? Yeah, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of taking advantage of, of various juicing we, we need to use it prudently, though, especially uh, you need to apply it to your situation. If you have diabetes, uh, it probably wouldn't be very wise to drink lots of juices. But cranberry juice has very uh, many medicinal qualities, natural medicinal qualities to that that can uh, be beneficial uh, for the kidneys and, and so forth. Okay, I know tonight's the last night or the series, um, but something else is going to be happening um, in next Monday, and actually for the next two Mondays, and it's Naturally Gourmet Cooking Classes with Karen Houghton. They are happening here Monday, June 30th at 7 p.m., and on Monday, July the 7th at 7 p.m. 